Oh, the unsuspecting helper. First section, a true neighbor. Have you been blessed with some good neighbors at any point in your life? Like Levi Taylor that I could phone this morning and give me a ride home from the hospital. Have you been the recipient of true neighborliness at some time? Say as simple a thing as a cup of sugar when you've run out. Someone has said, a good neighbor is one who will watch your vacation slides all evening without telling you that he or she has been there too. I seem to have rather a knack for needing help from neighbors now and then. Just this week, we begged a ride from a friend to pick up my car after it had been cleaned at a dealership. A few years ago, when I lived in Blythe, our lot had some wet patches. I'd managed to get the wheel horse lawn tractor stuck up to the axle. Asked a neighbor for a tugout with his truck. We promptly got the truck stuck, too. Then we turned to another neighbor, Jeff on the corner, who had a higher-powered four-wheel drive truck, which he took mud-bogging. Eventually, with his knobby tires and high axles, he succeeded in getting both of his neighbors unstuck. Life has its pitfalls. It's not always clear sailing. In today's passage, we see Jesus highlighting the importance of being a good neighbor, even if that means getting into the trench with them, not just concerned with keeping our own tires clean. Next section, love does to a point. To begin, Jesus is confronted by a religious lawyer who is out to prove whether this upstart rabbi really knows his stuff. Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Jesus often answers a question with another question. A question can set the terms for a discussion, and Jesus could press against the assumptions proposed by the questioner. For instance, the expert's query, what must I do to inherit eternal life, assumes eternal life is something to be earned by doing enough qualifying good works. This is the approach of many religions, where one's merits are weighed at judgment against one's faults. Jesus plays along with this thinking for a bit before pointing out the flaw. The expert gives what is actually a very good answer. Luke 10, 27, he answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But compare this interchange with Mark 12, 28 and following, where another teacher of the law asks about the most important commandment, and you'll find this man nailed it. In that account, Jesus remarks the questioner is not far from God's kingdom, which ought to have encouraged and intrigued him. But here, there's a different motive operating. This expert is out to test Jesus. He has an agenda, attempting to prove whether Jesus is deserving of all the hype. He wants to position himself as judge and jury. In a few minutes, though, Jesus will reveal the shallowness of the expert's theology and show he still has much to learn. Jesus' reply affirms the correctness of what he said. Love God with your whole being and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus concedes, do this and you will live. That's the gist of the law. 
Keep the whole law perfectly, and you will be deemed righteous before God. Hmm. There's just one tiny problem. We know we failed to do this lawlessly. All have sinned. And the wages of sin is death. Eternal life, then, is not achievable by attempting to just do in our own human strength. John MacArthur comments, Do and live is the promise of the law. But since no sinner can obey perfectly, the impossible demands of the law are meant to drive us to seek divine mercy. For example, the Mosaic law commanded a positive response toward an enemy when they are in need. That goes against our grain. Exodus 23, 4. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. Enemy? Someone who hates me? Doesn't every fiber of our being instead cry out, this is a golden opportunity to get even with them for what they've done to me. Justice! Thus, our lack of love is exposed. Section, the fake pharisaical fortress. Well, so far it has not been much of a test. Jesus has drawn the man out to demonstrate he already knew the answer to his own question. Now, that's unimpressive. Why did you bother asking it in the first place then? So the expert is thrown a little off balance and and reaches for some follow-up question that might show there was really some point to this interchange after all. Verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? To justify himself. The root in Greek is the same as for righteous. His aim is to undergird his sense of self-righteousness. I really am all right. I have kept the law. There ain't no flies on me. I have loved God and others satisfactorily. I am above reproach. And his culture probably reinforced his sense of self-righteousness, that he was justified, basically. Religious Judaism taught that neighbor did not include certain categories of people. Gentiles, the uncircumcised, for one. Rank sinners for another, even if they called themselves Jews. This would include tax collectors and prostitutes. You were better to steer clear of them, not have anything to do with them. And particularly Samaritans, who were viewed as half-breeds, both physically and spiritually, worshipping at another temple, respecting only the first books of the Bible. In the eyes of pious Jews, you were off the hook from having to treat such fallen, despicable sinners in a loving manner. Steer clear of them altogether. Keep yourself pure. Asking, who is my neighbor, seeks to draw the circle smaller, establish a limit or dividing line beyond which I won't be called upon to extend my services to help anyone. Neighbor is literally the person who is near me, a nigh-dweller to one. But that could be so many people, including the, the riffraff that would drag me down. Question seeks to create a fortress, a boundary, walling me off from others to whom I could be obligated. Jewish religion was very much centered on remaining clean, undefiled. 
don't do anything that might fall into the category of being taboo. That would disqualify you from being able to approach the temple. Any uncleanness that might force you into exile outside the camp like those poor lepers. The Pharisees prided themselves on their law-keeping ability, down to tithing the minuscule things like herbs, mint, dill, and cumin. But their majoring on the minors tended to take them off target. So they forgot weightier matters, such as justice for widows and the love of God. Their obsession about ceremonial cleanness became a fake pharisaical fortress separating them from others in genuine need. It's easier if you can draw the defining circle of who's your neighbor smaller and smaller. Michael Coist wrote this prayer. Lord, why did you tell me to love all men as my brothers? I've tried, but I come back to you frightened. Lord, I was so peaceful at home, so comfortably settled. I was well furnished and I felt so cozy. I was alone. I was at peace. Sheltered from wind and the rain, kept clean. section. What's your other side? How far? In response, Jesus tells a story. It shows the genius of Jesus in that he uses narrative to draw the listener in, to engage our emotions, our sense of compassion, rather than just give some instruction head on like, love your neighbor, which includes the following categories of people. Cue PowerPoint presentation, bullet point one. No. Jesus tells a story instead, a very memorable one, which doesn't instruct morality flat out, so much as portrays it in living color on the canvas of our mind and invites us to relate to the characters in the story. Verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. This could have been from a current newspaper clipping. That stretch from Jerusalem to Jericho dropped steeply 3,300 feet over 17 miles and had rugged mountain passes behind which thieves and robbers often hid to extort resources from passers-by. The setting of Jesus' parable is realistic enough. Life is fraught with hazards. Our health can fail. Many have recently finally had a personal encounter with the pandemic after escaping it for a couple of years. Marriages can develop fractures. Family relationships suffer from friction, not unified in expectations. Inflation rises. Interest rates go up. Supply chains get stretched. Work gets backed up. Such are the perils of life. There are perennial problems. We may feel we've been beaten up, left powerless. But will anybody care? Does it matter to anybody else what I'm having to struggle through? Wait, hope is in sight. Here come some potential helpers. All is not lost. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. Jericho was one of the cities of priests, so it made sense that a priest might be traveling that route from Jerusalem. And Levites were helpers to the priests, their assistants for temple duties. 
and responsible for distributing the aid donated through the offerings out to the needy in distant towns. That was kind of their social help network. If the Levites touched a dead body, that would classify them as unclean and thus unfit to do their duties. So they had a perfectly reasonable excuse not to get involved. It's right here that compassion and mercy lose out to this culturally reinforced emphasis upon ceremonial cleanness. Don't get your hands messy. You might become the next victim. Who knows, but the same bandits might be hiding behind those rocks waiting to beat and plunder you. Meanwhile, the half-dead victim's life ebbs further and further away. If nobody steps up soon to help him, he's going to be a goner. Will no one come and help? The phrase describing both priest and Levite is that they passed by on the other side. The other side, opposite, ante, where the injured man lay. Keep your distance. Don't get involved. Stay away. Whom do we tend to keep at arm's length? Who are we hesitant to become involved with? Because they might require practical aid from us, drain our resources, force us to stick our neck out of our comfy cocoons and furnished fortresses. What barriers have you erected from certain types of people or certain situations to keep yourself safe, excused from becoming involved? Section, The Unlikely Unstinting Hero. Now at this point in the story, if somebody else were telling it, there were other options for the hero that would have kept Jesus the champion of the middle and lower class Jew and not gotten him into further trouble. How about having a humble peasant come along? Maybe a poor widow or a lowly shepherd? Jesus could have put a totally different spin on this story and not set anyone's teeth on edge. Who does he choose? 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. A Samaritan? One of those people? Arch enemies of Jews? Even Jesus and his disciples encountered hostility when they attempted to stop on a journey at a Samaritan village. The two classes just did not get along. There was a history, including attacks on the other's holy place. In John 4, 9, the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It is surprising that a Samaritan would even be traveling along the road between Jerusalem and Jericho because he would be risking attack not only from robbers and thieves, but also hostility from any Jewish travelers he met. Brave lad. Does he see there in the distance at the side of the road? Is it a human form? Is it a man? Is he injured? We're not told whether it ever enters his mind to wonder, is he Jewish? To the Samaritan, that's suddenly irrelevant. What matters most is that the man is dying and in need of help. When he saw him, he took pity on him. Do you see that person over there? Or do you see a category that instantly releases you from any obligations? 
and you see yourself, if you were in that situation, how would you feel? What would you be crying out for others to do for you? That's compassion, to feel with, to identify with so deeply that you share the feelings the other person is experiencing. The Greek for took pity is to be moved as to one's bowels, to be moved with compassion. Your gut aches with their plight and misery. Instantly, our, uh, our unlikely hero dies into action, whipping out his handy-dandy little first aid pack that travelers back then would carry, wine for antiseptic, olive oil for soothing and healing. He hoists the sufferer onto his own donkey, meaning he himself has to walk the rest of the way. That's a step down in terms of dignity. He takes him to an inn and takes care of him. Other plans are put on hold. This person God has put in front of me is now my new priority. Are the things we'll just have to wait? The following day, the emphasis is still on taking care of this stranger, even if it means added cost and making special arrangements, even a blank check. Verse 35. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, NRSV. Take care of him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Two silver denarii would be two days' wages, so it would probably cover a couple of months' worth of room and board at the end. His giving is unstinting, unsparing. He wants this person to feel totally secure and looked after during convalescence. And all this from a person of whom the expert five minutes earlier might have declared, there is no such thing as a good Samaritan. Chuck Swindoll tells the following. A Greek class was given an assignment to study the story of the Good Samaritan. As is true in most classes, a, a couple or three of the students cared more about the practical implications of the assignment than its intellectual stimulation. The three carried out a plan where one played the Samaritan victim. They tore his clothes, rubbed on mud and ketchup to create wounds, marked up his face and eyes, and then placed him along the path that led from the dormitory to the classroom building. While the other two hid and recorded, he groaned and writhed, stimulating great pain. Not one student stopped. They walked around him, stepped over him, and said things to him. Nobody stopped to help. Swindoll concludes, following the will of the Lord requires wisdom, clear thinking, and yes, action. Those seminary students were full of the word and probably had a great deal of love, but they did not see their fellow man lying beside the sidewalk. They were too full of words to see God's work right in front of their eyes. He points to 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Neighboring is in the being. Jesus drives his illustration home by massaging slightly the question asked by the expert. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. 
Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The poor guy can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. Jesus has flipped the question from the self-righteous, fortifying who is my neighbor that draws limits around my obligations to, in essence, how can I be a neighbor? Who was the neighbor that becomes limitless? It no longer depends on the other person's deserving or qualifying, meeting the right conditions, but on my own heart condition. Am I really ready to love as God has loved me? The emphasis is not on the doing, but on the being, which in turn expresses its genuineness in doing. And the heart change, repentance, trust, is driving the outward action. Jesus said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Faith issues in action. The two go together. But it's love for God that's the engine issuing in love for other people and thus acts of mercy. Robertson comments, This parable of the Good Samaritan has built the world's hospitals and if understood and practiced will remove race prejudice national hatred, and war, class jealousy. On May 9th, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador chartered a plane to bring Ukrainian refugees to their province with partner agencies providing support such as translation services, medical coverage, job interview services, immigration processing, and help finding accommodation. Later in the week, our federal government announced plans to bring three plane loads, or about 900 Ukrainian refugees, to Winnipeg, May 23rd, Montreal, May 29th, and Halifax, June 2nd. These would be examples of showing compassion to individuals who have lost so much in recent weeks. Have you heard of the move-in movement? Small clusters of Christian believers coordinate to move into areas with those of low income and where the gospel does not have much representation with the aim of being a faith community bearing witness to Jesus amongst their neighbors. In the message, Eugene Peterson translates John 1.14, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. When we truly see people in need and are moved with compassion for them, we don't pass by on the other side at a safe distance, but dare to move in and get involved. Robert Rains relates, when narcotics squad detectives recently raided a loft apartment in a depressed area of New York City, every square foot of the long dingy apartment was crowded with human derelicts who were sleeping on the floor or sitting huddled in corners, dimly visible overhead were a number of paper ceiling ornaments left over from the days when the loft had been a dance hall. After searching the crowd, the detectives arrested six men who were carrying hypodermic needles and packets of heroin. They also arrested the derelict's host, a mild, weedy-looking man who was charged with harboring drug addicts in his apartment. At police headquarters, the weedy-looking man claimed he was actually well-to-do, but that he had chosen to live among the homeless in order to provide them with food, shelter, and clothing. His door, he said, was open to all, including a small minority of narcotic addicts, since he had not known it was against the law to feed and clothe people with the drug habit. 
Checking his story, the police found that the man was indeed neither a vagrant nor a drug addict. He was John Sergeant Cram, a millionaire who had been educated at Princeton and Oxford and whose family had long been noted for its philanthropies. Wishing to avoid the rigmarole of organized charity work, Cram had simply moved into the loft and set about helping the derelicts directly at a cost of $100 or so a day. He made a point of not giving the men money, he told the police, because it only went for cheap wine. At a later hearing, a variety of witnesses spoke of Cram's kindness and altruism, and it was brought out that the Spanish-speaking population of the area knew him as Papa Dio, Father God. Amid cheers in the courtroom, Mr. Cram was freed on his promise that he would bar drug addicts from his loft. He later told reporters, I don't know that my work does much good, but I don't think it does any harm. I'm quite happy, you know. I'm anything but a despondent person. Call me eccentric. Call it my reason for being. I have no other. Let's pray. Forgive us, Lord, for our attempts to test you to question your ways, to justify ourselves. You have already done that for us by giving your perfect and sinless Son, Jesus, as our substitute. Thank you for his teaching, drawing us to not write off people who are unlike us, but to see beyond the exterior to their inner needs and potential. By your community of faith, help us to bind up each other's wounds when we're robbed and beaten and bleeding. Pour your compassion and caring and resources into us so we can help others when they're down as you have exalted us in our humble state. We love you. We want to be yours completely. Lead us in obedience to pour out our lives for others in your abundant grace. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Thank you, Ernest.